We are uh, in our journey through the New Testament. We have finished the books of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, or Philemon, depending on, I don't know how to pronounce it properly. I always go with Philemon, so I'm going with that. Um, but what that means is that, that as we have read through these books of the Bible, uh, as we began in the book of Matthew on January 1, and, and as we've read through it, we've come to the conclusion of the books that were authored by Paul, the apostle. We call him an apostle. He was uh, one chosen by God to uh, lead us and chosen by God to put words in, on pen on paper. Actually, most of the time, he didn't actually do the handwriting. Somebody did that for him. Um, he indicates that in, in the scripture. Uh, um, we think maybe because he had trouble with his eyes that somebody else wrote for him, but he gave them the words to put on paper and uh, um, as has, had been revealed to him by God. And so this letter, Titus, that I'm going to read for, from this morning, this is uh, second to the last, but we've read all of Paul's letters. We move from Paul to, uh, to the letters uh, to the Hebrews and then uh, um, to letters from Peter and uh, James and uh, John and Jude um, are the other letters before we hit uh, the book of Revelation. But this is the last of them. And I, I honestly, I, I did a little research on my own. I've got all my sermons on a database. And so I, I called up the database and tried to figure out, I don't think I've ever preached from Jude before. I did a search and couldn't find it. So this is kind of a first for me. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, so I'm going to read from the book of Jude, uh, the book of Titus, excuse me, um, uh, the, the uh, second chapter. And beginning at verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives. Right now, by rejecting ungodly lives and the desires of the world. At the same time, we wait for this blessed hope and the glorious appearance of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us in order to rescue us from every kind of lawless behavior and cleanse a special people for himself who are eager to do good actions. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I uh, often will listen to podcasts and sermons and things like that as I'm driving or um, as I'm cutting the lawn, um, which is always interesting because um, you got to turn it up really loud to get over the lawnmower, and then you know how that goes, right? Then, you, then when you turn it off, you're talking to people like this. But I was listening to one particular podcast, and uh, um, Andy Stanley uh, is a pastor from Atlanta, Georgia, and Andy does a leadership podcast. And I was listening to one of his podcasts, um, and he was talking to a, a man by the name of Tim Elmore. And uh, Tim Elmore is a businessman who recognized as he was hiring people right out of college, he recognized that they didn't necessarily come out, of, they came out of college with good knowledge, but not necessarily the life skills and work skills and leadership skills that he needed for his business. So he decided to do something about it. And um, he began on uh, one college campus, it spread to two, but he has this leadership training program that he does for college students that gives life skills and um, business skills and leadership skills uh, that helps them learn what those. And um, anyway, so as he's developing this uh, whole program, he's interviewing college students, talking to them about where they are in life and faith. And uh, he did include faith as a part of this. 
And he noticed a certain duality um, that, that was appearing um, with these students, that, that there was a certain kind of a, a place they began, presumptions that they had that were not necessarily overly helpful for how they interacted with business and, and uh, um, just life in general um, as it is right now. Now, he doesn't bring, um, as he looks at this, he doesn't necessarily um, uh, uh, bring commentary on it, except for a little bit. Um, you'll see what I mean. So he said that, that uh, what he found among college students today, and this is recent writing, so it's college students today, he found that um, they have a, a presumption that speed is important. That speed is the, the 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 pace at which things move is important. The duality, the the other side of that that he recognized in 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 talking to these students was the assumption then that therefore slow is bad. Speed is important, therefore slow is bad. See the duality that, that was set up there. This dualism that that is uh, one is good, one is bad. And, and he couldn't help but think that there are some things in business and some things in life that are better over time, that are better if they take time. And, and he wondered about that. It's just one of those things to think about. The next is um, the value of convenience. That the students had this, this sense of value of convenience. We all, I think, kind of have that value of convenience. But what that meant is that if something was inconvenient or hard, it was bad. Again, these are general overviews, not necessarily individuals think this. It was just sort of a pervasive attitude. Uh, the third was a need for entertainment. And I'm, I'm right there with them. I mean, I've always got my phone on me. I've always got, you know, music playing in the background or the TV on or something. I, 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 it's just the way I am. I always have that going. And, and, uh, um, and maybe you're that way as, as well. Um, but but the, the downside to that was that solitary or or downtime was bad, was not seen to have a value. And, and I know this, uh, so every, every day I, I try to make this my regular practice while I'm here at the office. Um, if I, uh, uh, after an hour, I get up and I walk around the parking lot and then come back in and go back to work. And that hour, that, that five minute or so walk allows me to sort of reboot my mind, refresh and, and start thinking about the things that are important, to focus on the things that are important. Sometimes it's a prayerful time. Sometimes it's just, let me think through this thing that I gotta do, this article I've gotta write, this sermon I'm preparing. Um, uh, but that solitary time, that downtime, is not seen as something of value. The next is that, uh, um, uh, that these students have been raised in a nurtured or cocoon type environment. Now, before you get critical, by the way, you raised them, okay? I mean, we need to be clear about that. So if you're critical of the way students are today, take some blame there. Um, but, but in this nurtured, my, my brother-in-law is, uh, is a college professor, and um, he's, he's a dean, uh, just started this year as a dean at, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Prior to that, though, he was provost, which is kind of the dean of deans. It's the, uh, the, the, the um, uh, vice president of academics at, at Southeast Missouri State. And um, he was amazed how he would get phone calls from parents to complain about their students' grades. He's like, I'm not a middle school principal. 
You're calling about an adult student and wanting to argue with me on the grades, and I don't even know the professor you're talking about some of the times. Um, but because they've been raised in that sort of cocoon type environment, risk is bad. Danger is bad. And we know that if you're going to start a business, there's risk involved. If you're going, I mean, there's risk involved to so much in life. But if you hold as a, as a presumption that risk is bad, where does that put you? And then the, the last of the five is uh, what we've, so many have talked about in the past is that there's a, a sense of entitlement, a, a sense that I, that I deserve things that, that I haven't necessarily earned. And of course, the, the flip side of that is working for it is bad. Now that sounds just awful about those students and it sounds like we have no future at all. Um, but he, wasn't, he was just pointing out that, that the, the attitudes and the presumptions, the starting place of previous generations is not the starting place of the future generations. The, the, the bedrock, the, the, the foundation of their understanding, their worldview is not the same. And so what might that mean? He was, he was asking the question, just what might that mean? What will the, the world look like? How will the world work in 30 years? When they're looking back at that generation of college students going, Meh, them, as we're doing right now. What might that look like? What, the, uh, the, the very skills and presumptions that has allowed past generations to thrive are not their presumptions. So they have a different starting place. And I want to, ma I want to say that I think it matters where you start. Because if you begin with speed, convenience, entertainment, safety, and entitlement, you'll struggle with things that are slow, inconvenient, lonely, risky, are hard. Your starting point would govern your outcome. We know this too. If you if you think about um, what, gosh, I I remember being talked to about this when, when I was a child. Uh, um, self esteem and and when we think about self esteem, people with low self esteem are less likely to be high achievers in life. And you, and you think about. Um, uh, People who, who have a victim mentality. Now, what I'm not, let me be clear, um, I'm not victim blaming. Um, there are people who have been victims um, and, and have suffered uh, uh, from other people. And we don't, we, don't do vic we don't blame the victim. But if you have a victim mentality, the whole world is against me. Then you never take responsibility for yourself. And you're always, you're always complaining about what everybody else has done to you. And how does that help you in life? And how do you approach life if you see yourself always as the victim? Growing up, I remember I was the short, fat kid. I mean, I was always chubby. Always. As a matter of fact, it's not that many years ago I weighed 250 pounds. I'm down to 175 now. I said to Nancy uh, one day, I, I want to lose 10 more pounds. I want to be down to 165. And she goes, you're already too thin. And I can't imagine that because when I look in the mirror, I don't see thin. You know what that's about, right? I mean, you, you've had that experience yourself that, that those certain things, I, as a child, I never could sing. Had a terrible voice as a child and puberty just made it worse. 
Today, I could probably sing in the church choir and, and be, uh, have some value to the church choir. My voices seem to allow me that, but I never hear my voice myself as good. Other people would say, man, you're a good singer. You ought to be in the choir. Nope. I don't hear it. We all have those things in our life that are the starting place for us, the presumptions that we bring into life, and they significantly impact where you go in life and what you do in life and what you say in life. When I went to seminary, we, uh, um, I, I had a class called uh, Systematic Theology. In systematic theology, um, the system idea is that you begin with theology. So theology is um, what you say about God. Theologos, it's Greek for words about God or God words. Um, so what, what do you say about God? What, what do you think is uh, the, the baseline? Who is God? What is God like? Uh, how does God approach creation? And, and all of that sort of thing. What do you say about God? And then from that, you build from that. Your system always has to connect back to your base, who God is. So from that, you build who is Jesus Christ, your Christology, we call that, words about Christ. So you go from, from theology to Christology. Um, you might also, if you, as you think about that, think of it kind of like an inverted um, uh, pyramid uh, because beside Christology um, and the need for salvation, which, by the way, is called soteriology, is... Uh, um, Anthropology, what do you believe about humanity? What do you believe about people and our condition in, in the face of God? And so uh, those have to be kind of parallel because what you believe about, about um, uh, humanity and what you believe about Jesus Christ and, and the salvation he brings are part of the same conversation. And then from there, you talk about what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? That's called pneumatology. And what do you believe about the church? That's called ecclesiology. And what do you believe uh, about, about the, the mission of the church? Missiology. So you build all these pieces based on where you started. It's always based on where you started. With theology, what do you believe about God? And believe me, the professor would critique you. Okay, I've just read your paper on pneumatology and you said nothing about what you said about God. It's got to connect. It's got to be related. There's got to be a starting point. And I think that starting point is important, not just for a, a, a seminary student, but for all of us. Where do you start? So where do you start? If I asked you to fill in the blank, God is, you know, they did that at the last service too. It's like crickets. That, that was actually an interactive moment. God is love. Okay, so I, I've heard a few other things, but God is love. That's, by the way, what I wrote my seminary paper, theology, the base was God is love. We get that from 1 John. Uh, you'll read that in a, in a few weeks. Uh, God is love. It specifically says that in 1 John. But we don't just get it from 1 John. We get it from very many places in the scriptures. Is that your starting point? Or is that something that, that, that you say, God is love, but I've got the rest of my life to deal with? Is that, is, that where, is that a presumption of yours that guides everything else? 
In this uh, message series, uh, Living a Life That Leads, um, the premise is that all of us are called to lead people to faith in Jesus Christ. All of us as Christians, as we accept faith in Jesus Christ, we become the ones who lead others to Jesus Christ. And I'm not necessarily talking about evangelism per se, um, though that's what it is. I'm not talking about that, that scary part where you go to your neighbor and say, brother, let me tell you about Jesus. Or a complete stranger, which might actually be easier than your neighbor. But, but how are you living your life such that others want to come to know Christ. And so we began the first week, two weeks ago, with 1 Timothy, and, and we talked about um, uh, uh, who in your, in your faith life has influenced you, who poured into you, or who is still pouring into you, uh, um, uh, offering you um, uh, uh, their expertise and their years of experience and their wisdom and their knowledge. Who's pouring into you, and then, and then who are you pouring into? There should always be somebody ahead of us in our faith that we're thinking about and somebody behind us in our faith that we're thinking about. So who are you pouring into and who's pouring into you. So that was 1 Timothy. And then we looked at, at 2 Timothy the next week and, and we talked about heritage. This was just last week. We talked about heritage. And heritage is that part of history that has value in that it tells us who we're called to be. So we look at the traditions and the history that's passed and we say, what part of that do we carry forward? In this service, we don't do a lot of the traditions, but we will be doing communion. And some of the language of the communion goes back to Paul writing in biblical times. And of course, Jesus doing that, that first, uh, that Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, the first Last Supper. So what traditions do we carry forward? And those are our heritage. What are, what are the traditions that are, are worth continuing? What, are the, what, what is the, our belief system? What are our practices that are worth continuing? And of course, the flip side of that is what ought to be just left in the past? Today, I just want to talk about where you begin. Where you begin. Where do you start? I believe Paul starts the same place that, that we answered that question, God, or that finished that sentence, God is love. I think that's where Paul starts. As, as we're reading this and we're at the conclusion of, of Paul's letters, uh, but we can look backwards and say, where has Paul been? What, ha, what has he taught us? What, what has been foundational to what he said? And I think, I think the foundational to what he says is that verse 11 of what I read a little bit ago, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people. So there, um, just a side note that's kind of interesting, there is a, 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 a prescribed group of Bible texts that um, some preachers will preach uh, according to this prescription. It's called the lectionary. If you go to a Catholic church, they follow a lectionary. Many Protestant churches follow what's called the revised common lectionary. It's close to the Catholic church, but there's a few other things that they insert in. In the lectionary, um, in the, lectionary the, uh, um, the Bible verses uh, rotate on a three-year basis. And you don't cover every single verse in the Bible. You cover a great many of them, but not every single one. And um, in this three-year rotation, uh, each Sunday, you usually have a, an Old Testament verse or passage. 
And then a psalm or proverb, which is also from the Old Testament, but they separate that out. Some of the wisdom literature, they call that. And then a New Testament verse, which is separate from a gospel. So we know that the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the New Testament. But anyway, they divide that out. Um, and uh, do you know when this passage, this passage from, uh, uh, from Titus, you know, when, you know when this shows up in, in that lectionary? And oddly enough, it's every year. It's not on the three-year rotation. This passage shows up every year. When would that make sense? The grace of God has appeared. Sounds like Christmas, doesn't it? This is the Christmas Eve or Christmas Day New Testament text. The grace of God has appeared. The love of God shows up in the real person of Jesus Christ. And not only that, because the love of God shows up, salvation is available to all. This is like a Christmas text, but this is foundational. This is kind of a, a, an understanding of the starting point that Paul wants to make sure he gets that point across, but he doesn't just do it in the book of Titus. If you look in all the other books, so we've been through Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and uh, Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and now Titus, and we've also read Philemon. The, the assumption, the presumption that God is love is in there. Let me illustrate for you by, by just going through those, those books of the Bible and just pulling out a piece of it in Romans. But God shows his love for us because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 Corinthians, and now faith, hope, and love abide these three, and the greatest of these is love. In 2 Corinthians, finally, brothers and sisters, goodbye. Put things in order. Respond to my encouragement. Be in harmony with each other and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. In Galatians, and the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Ephesians, God destined us to be adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. And, and Philippians, and I couldn't just do one or two verses, I just had to, uh, this is part of what's often called the Philippian hymn, and, and um, it, it doesn't necessarily talk about love, it talks about the activity of love that is Jesus Christ. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of, of a human, he humbled himself by becoming Coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how love acts. In Colossians, as God's chosen ones, holy and loved. First Thessalonians, brothers and sisters, you are loved by God. Second Thessalonians, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father loved us and through grace gave us eternal comfort and a good hope. In 1 Timothy, the goal of instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And I like that as you think about it, the, the goal is love. And if you, if you look at, at the goal of education, the goal of discipleship, the goal of learning about who God is, is to be the love of God. In, in verse 12 of what I read from Titus, it educates us, disciples us, teaches us. It educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives. 
And then finally, in 2 Timothy, leading up to our book today, hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is where Paul starts. This is Paul's basis. This is Paul's foundation. This is where Paul starts. Does it matter that we start there? Because I, I really think it does. I, I, think it's, I think it's so important for us to, to think, where is your starting point for every conversation, for every activity in your life? Um, I, I believe what you believe about God is who you become. I'm not the first one to say that. What you believe about God is who you become. So if you believe God is love, sincerely believe God is love, will you become that? I hear from people all the time, I'll be in conversation with somebody and they'll say something like, you know, I just think God is punishing me. No, God is love. Your life's a mess and we still got to talk about that. We still got to work through that mess. We got to figure out what's the cause of that or, or if we can't figure out a cause, we got to figure out what should happen and could happen and, and would happen if we were a follower of Jesus Christ, um, understanding that God is love. But God's not punishing you. God doesn't do that. God is love. And then we might say, you know, I'm pretty sure God hates those people because of what they do. No, God is love. God doesn't hate. God is love. And as a matter of fact, if we'd approach those people from the starting point of God is love and therefore I should be as well, doesn't that change things for us? Doesn't that, that sort of edit the conversation ahead of time? It must be God's judgment because of the hurricane, earthquake, flood, natural disaster that came. It must be God's judgment on those people for the things they've done. No. God is love. Bless you. God loves you. If we begin with that as the starting point, as our assumption, as our attitude, how does it change? How does it reframe the way that we approach people that we encounter daily? Just as importantly, if we begin with the love God has shown us and by showing up in Jesus Christ, how does that change the way we relate to the people? I, I once heard uh, this description of love, and I, I really like it. Um, I think it's incomplete, but I like it. Love is unconditional positive regard. Love is unconditional positive regard. That type of love radically changes how you interact with the people around you, I think. If you approach everyone with this unconditional positive regard, and see, I think this is where it falls short. I think that's a, uh, that's a great philosophical stance that, that we assume everybody is loved by God just as we are. If we assume that about everyone, then it's not just regard, but how we approach them. It's not just how we consider them, but operative in the way we act, in the way we talk, in the way we treat people, in the way that we understand God seeking to act in their lives. If we're to be like Christ, and Christ is God's love for us, 
God's grace that has appeared, it says in that verse 11. Then loving others in the way Christ loved us, the way grace appeared to us, means regarding them, and even more than that, but living with them with an unconditional positive perspective. Love is the motivation of our actions. And in verse 12, again, it says this, that because of that love, it says um, it educates us, meaning the grace of God, as we know in Jesus Christ, educates us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives. The grace of God, which has appeared in Jesus Christ and brought us to our salvation, teaches us to live sensible, ethical, and godly lives. Now, I think, I think for the most part, and I could come up with some exceptions, I think for the most part, we live sensible lives. I think I could come up with an exception or two, but for the most part. And I think for the most part, we try to live godly lives. But the ethical part is that part that's the activity. It's not a love that regards, it's an ethic that moves us into the world. Ethics is about the way that we treat other people. It's about mercy and compassion in times of need. It's about advocacy for those that don't have a voice. It's about walking with people who need a companion in the journey of life. It's about seeing all people, no matter their circumstances, as people of sacred worth and offering them that very dignity. If God is love, and that's where your theology begins, and God's love showed up in Jesus Christ, and that's where your Christology begins, and God's love brings salvation, and that's where your soteriology, salvation, begins. How does that inform your everyday, ordinary, and a maybe even occasional extraordinary interactions with people in life. How does that change the way that you meet people? God is love. God's love has been poured out to you in Jesus Christ. Accept that as a free gift that it's been given to you. And then take the next step to assure that your beginning point from here on out, your beginning point with every interaction in life, is the assumption that God loves the other just as God loves you. Amen and amen.